thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted to have you with me again this week. And today's podcast, just to give you a little heads up, is going to be pretty sobering, particularly if you're a parent or you're a grandparent and care about your children, being able to raise your grandchildren under the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Let me encourage you, when you finish listening to this, if you have found value in it, share it with as many people as you know or who might care about government overreach into matters of the family and parental rights. The reason that I'm covering this today is that legislation is pending in Tennessee and in at least six other states. Um, Three of them I recall off the top of my head, Texas, Florida, Nebraska. I think Utah may have already passed a law uh, on a similar vein. Uh, But all of them, if drafted incorrectly, and I know that Tennessee falls into that category, and most likely the proposed legislation in every other state because they're all working off the same legal slash policy strategy. So when today I speak about this bill in Tennessee, much of what I will be saying will pertain to legislation that may be pending in your state. And in any event, you need to watch out for bills that are doing the opposite of what we're doing here in Tennessee and these other states because they'll still have the same effect on you. So in other words, every parent in the nation who cares about real, true, objective, fundamental parental rights needs to pay attention. But let me also add this. This topic is not a departure from what we've been covering about Christian nationalism and cancel culture as being two sides of the same coin. It's not inconsistent with those programs, but today I'm going to focus on the cancel culture side of that coin. And I'm going to do it by focusing on this legislation. Now, what is this legislation? It is legislation that is rightly trying to stop what's euphemistically called gender-affirming care from being provided to minor children. Now, if you're a a parent saying, well, I'm never going to do that, that doesn't affect me, the way the laws are being drafted dramatically affect you and you need to pay attention. Specifically what I'm going to show today, just so you know where I'm going, is I'll show what happens when Rousseau's civil religion, that I've talked about the last couple of weeks, fills our everyday life and informs civil government's duties when Christianity is spiritualized and we deny or we suppress the truth that the regenerate person is to be every bit as much a molder and shaper of culture as the unregenerate man. 
Creating culture was the task God gave the first Adam. And yet many, when they spiritualize Christianity, think that that task given the first Adam has nothing to do with the second Adam, who is Christ, who is restoring the image of God in man by which he was to create culture in the first place. So the image of God was given to us that we might fulfill the dominion mandate, fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God, and yet somehow we say that the second Adam, well, that's none of the purposes for which he came. I mean, it's just, to me, a little crazy here. But anyway, I hope what you'll see then is that this is a Gnostic view of Christianity. It's a separation of the spiritual from the material. It's a two-realm view of reality. And this kind of separation always leads to trouble. And here's the second thing. Always leads to God disciplining his people at the hands of those who are not his people. Think of the stories in the Old Testament. God warned his people through prophets, but he used the wicked and gave them power in order to discipline, refine his people and bring about his purposes of salvation and the recreation of the cosmos without the pollution of sin. So when we separate Christianity from the everyday of the world, which is what Rousseau was saying, that's what Christianity is. It's a spiritualized thing, and many Christians spiritualize it. You'll see what we get in its place, and it is cancel culture. The fact is, culture is going to be molded and shaped by persons regenerate or not, because that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And if Christians are just righteous people waiting to fly away to worlds unknowns, well, you get cancel culture. And I'm going to talk next week about part of what that cancel culture will look like because we have our, our loves improperly ordered. But I can't get into that today, so I hope you'll tune back in next week. Now, I want to put what I've just said in the context of two reasons given in the Tennessee version of this legislation dealing with gender-affirming care in minors that serve as the predicate for why the state has a compelling interest in stepping in to prevent parents from making these medical decisions on behalf of their children. And I want to put those reasons that are in the Tennessee legislation in the context of a story in Fox News this week about Ginger Duggar and being raised under the Bill Gothard theology and discipleship principles. Now with respect to this legislation, I would say, and, and I've been in state politics, my first legislative session was in 1995, and I have been in state politics continuously since then. And I don't think I've ever seen legislation put forward by so many Christians, well-intentioned, no doubt, and supported in a particular approach by so many Christian lawyers, again, well-intentioned, that actually exposes how little we understand 
about the nature of the cosmos we live in, or about law, and the function of civil government. And, and I'll confess, friends, in the old days, I would just be mad. And now I'm mostly just heartbroken for the state of the church. Because until a few years ago, I thought exactly like those whose political, legislative, and legal actions I'll be critiquing today. It's only by the grace of God that I've come to know anything differently. And that's why I want to share it in this podcast and hope that you will share this podcast with your friends. So with that, let's go. I'm going to begin with stating that the bills on this subject of minors and gender-affirming care are all predicated in every state on the same thing, what medical science shows to be harmful to children. And of course, you and I would believe it is harmful. But those who oppose these bills, and they're sure going to wind up being challenged as unconstitutional in federal court, they're going to say there's another medical side to the story, right? You just expect it. Now, the Christians are saying that our side of the medical story is more correct than the other side. But if the fight in the legislature and in the courtroom is over whose science is more right, Christians have already lost the entire cosmological battle and most likely the constitutional one. Let me say that again. That if the fight in the legislature and in the courtroom is over whose science is more right than the other, then Christians have already lost the entire cosmological battle over the nature of reality, and most likely they will lose the constitutional one. And in losing that, parental rights will be lost, and I'll explain why as we go on. I, I, I want to give you a, a, an example for why you cannot base the law strictly on choosing which side of the medical science seems to be best. And the reason is that in the court of law, particularly, there has to be some standard by which you decide which of the two medical stories is the best or right one. In other words, there has to be something above and beyond the medical evidence by which the medical evidence is to be judged. So here's an example that came to my mind as I was thinking about this and trying to explain it to, to some people, some friends of mine. It's in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And here's what he says. Supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger, you will probably feel two desires. This corresponds, in my view, to two sets of medical stories, right? Lewis continues, one is a desire to help, the other a desire to keep out of danger. But you'll find inside you, in addition to these two impulses, a third thing which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. Now, this thing that judges between two instincts, 
or I would say between two medical stories, right, that decides which should be encouraged or which should not be encouraged, cannot itself be either of them. You might as well say that the sheet of music which tells you at a given moment to play one note on the piano and not another is itself one of the notes on the keyboard. The moral law tells us the tune we have to play. So there's something that precedes these two medical stories. That's what we would call true law, law that exists independent of anything the judge says or the legislature says by which these two competing medical stories is to be judged and one is to be accepted and the other is rejected. So if we reduce it down to just here are two competing medical stories, pick the one you like best without having a law to judge our picking, then we as Christians are lawless. I, I hope that makes sense. There must be something that judges the conflicting medical evidence, and in none of these bills is there any lawful reason given, any pre-existing law offered by which to say this set of medical evidence is, is in accord with the truth, and this is not. It's not offered. We don't even think in terms of law. And so essentially all we're doing is saying, Man decides for himself. You pick the one that makes most sense to you, and therefore everything comes down to a power struggle with no law by which to judge those struggling for power. Now, I want to inject something else here that I think is very important. Conservatives say they hate it, when courts or judges become policymakers. I've said it myself. And what we mean by that is we don't like it when judges decide what the policy should be. We think that's for the legislature. And what we're saying is the judge is just simply sitting in the role of the legislature and deciding for themselves what they think the law ought to be. And in this case, we're asking them to decide between the medical evidence and which one they like better. And it has to come down to which one they like better according to their own moral sense because we've not offered them any transcendent objective moral law by which to judge the medical evidence. So regardless of what happens, both sides are going to accuse the judge of making policy when in fact we put the judge in the position of having to make policy because we didn't give the judge any law by which to judge the two competing views of what the policy should be. So we decry policy-making judges and yet we put them in a position where that's all they can do. See, that's why we lost Roe versus Wade for 48 years. We were arguing about medical science without arguing what does the law say a person is. And if the unborn are persons the same as every other person, then, well, you cannot deprive them of life or treat them unequally with every other person. So we're getting ready to go right back into the same mess that was Roe versus Wade. And if you'll recall, 
Roe versus Wade was not reversed because we now had better science than the pro-abortion side. It was reversed because we relied on, or the court, the court relied on law, specifically the common law, which is the acknowledgement of a law that precedes anything the judge or the legislature says. So when we don't offer any law, when I, I keep telling people you need to offer law and they don't, all I can conclude is that they either don't believe in law or God has somehow chosen to not let them hear, not let them see, not let them understand, and for reasons that I'll get into next week. So I hope you'll join me next week. But what we should see here, if you're a parent, is that there can be no true parental rights. They're gone, as well as any objective standard for civil liberty. And why? Because there's no law outside of the lawmaker or the judge to inform their decisions between competing views. Now, let me give you some language from the Tennessee bill as it is particularly bad, and I don't think some of this is in the other bills in other states, but it may be, and you need to check. Now, I do want to say, for those of my listeners in Tennessee, I am working in a non-public way behind the scenes with some others, including some of our legislators, to try to get what I'm going to explain to you fixed. There's no desire on my part to embarrass anyone or have anyone call our legislators and accuse them of not being Christians. Do not make that phone call if that's what you want to do. If you want to do something for right now, be praying that God will work to will and to do his good pleasure in those who know him. And they'll have the courage to, to speak up, to, to ask questions, to probe what's going on. And, and as I said, you know, I might have thought the same way a few years ago. I might have relied on the national experts that everybody else is relying on, and, and I would, except for the graciousness of God of bringing me to some people who gave me a remedial education in law and tied it to the scriptures. So, here are two of the reasons given for why the state should step in to the family's jurisdiction and specifically the jurisdiction between a parent and a child related to medical or health care decisions affecting the child. So if as a parent you've ever made medical decisions for your children, maybe to have a COVID shot or not have a COVID shot, for example, well, uh, you need to be paying attention because that's what we're now dealing with with this law. And here's what this state. The state, the law says, has a legitimate, substantial, and compelling interest in protecting minors from physical and emotional harm. Now, I would agree that the state doesn't just have an interest. It has a duty to protect persons from physical harm because the common law acknowledged that that a fundamental right that does not come from the government but exists in the fact that God has made us is the right to possess our bodies in their health. So the state should protect my 
my limbs, my body, my health. They should protect my life. That's a fundamental right. It's a fundamental law. But emotional harm? Now, let me ask you, what is the legal definition of what constitutes emotional harm? I don't know. In fact, if you're going to assert that as a legislator, that you have a duty to protect kids from, from emotional harm, well, you've just opened the door for the other side to say, yes, exactly, my child is suffering emotionally, and the doctor says, if I don't begin to transition my child now, he's liable to commit suicide. He'll be so depressed. Why isn't the state stepping in to make sure that I can give this medical treatment to my child? You see what you just opened your door to? You've just said, as a Republican, and that's in our case, I must be for social and emotional learning, right? Because the state has an interest in making sure that children are emotionally well-balanced and healthy. Wow. And, and then here's the other one. It says, the state has a legitimate, substantial, and compelling interest in promoting the dignity of minors. Now, what in the world is the legal and objective definition of dignity such that the state can't come in and do just about anything under the guise of dignity. In fact, the Obergefell decision about same-sex marriage in 2015 spoke in terms of dignity and legal scholars. People who are supporting this wording of these bills mocked the decision by saying, oh, I guess there's now a new dignity clause in the United States Constitution. If the state has a duty to protect dignity, there must be a right to dignity. And, and where did that right come from and what defines it? Do you see now, once the legislature has put this in law, this is now a precedent that can be used by others to now expand the state's interference in the family and the parent-child relationship and with no boundaries other than, well, it could cause emotional harm, deprives the child of dignity. Now, let me put this in the context of the Jill Duggar story. I'm, I'm going to quote now from the story in Fox News. And if I can figure out how to put a link to it, I'll, I'll put a link to it on our podcast page. And I'm just going to quote here. Ginger Duggar Violo, I don't know how you pronounce her last name, finally feels free after being raised to follow religious teachings that she says were cult-like in nature. The former Counting On star has written a book that's being published on January 31st titled Becoming Free Indeed, My Story of Disentangling Faith from Fear. It explores her strict upbringing as well as what compelled her to walk away from the false teachings of Bill Gothard. Quoting her, the article says, I would definitely say that his philosophy, referring to Gothard, was cult-like in nature. I can't say, oh, it was a cult, I'll leave that to the experts, but I will say that a lot of things make it tough for kids to leave or families to leave because the community's so tight-knit. Duggar alleged that Gothard's teaching, quote, are based on fear and superstition, end quote, which left her with crippling anxiety that she still struggles with today. The article goes on and quotes her as making this statement. 
There's a healthy fear of God that the Bible speaks of, but it's more of an awe, reverence, realizing the greatness of God. But sadly, Bill Gothard would take one verse of the Bible and make it say whatever he wanted to say, and he'd make up his own man-made rules and say, this is the Bible. And then he would have you vow to God to keep this principle. It, it was very binding. He, he would say, never break your vow before God. It was fear-based. I remember he would talk about rock music a lot, she recalled. He said anything with this specific beat in a drum is harmful. It's dangerous. He told the story of a young man who was in a car accident and died because he was listening to music with the drums. I remember one time we were on our way to one of the seminars and somebody turned on music with drums in the car. I was freaking out. I just thought, goodness, this is it. We're going to have a car accident because somebody turned this on. I was so fearful. Now that sounds like emotional harm to me, wouldn't it? I mean, you might say, well, I love Bill Gothard and I, you know, I agree with everything that he said, but that's not the point. The point is, Ginger Duggar was exposed to Gothard teaching and it made her fearful and that is emotional harm. So why can't the state step in now and say, oh, you cannot take children to Bill Gothard seminars or maybe some other Christian seminar. Now, your first reaction is going to be, well, you can't do that because of the First Amendment. But, but what if it's a, a Trump rally? What if it's a focus on the family event? So that it's not, quote, Christian per se, maybe, or it's not your church. I mean, Bill Gothard's thing wasn't a church, right? You could still go to church, but no, you can't go through Bill Gothard's seminars. You can as an adult when you have enough experience to know how to filter it, but no, we have to protect the children from emotional harm and the possibility that it could impair their dignity in the years to come. Now, why would this in a cancel culture not be prevented by the First Amendment and the freedom of religion. So let me, let me explain that to you. If you recall, the foundation of rights in Rousseau was not Christianity because it was wholly spiritual. The foundation of rights was in the social contract and the purpose of the contract was not the glory of God but sociability. Remember that? And promoting the sentiments of sociability. And whatever the majority to that agreement thinks promotes those sentiments and promotes sociability is, is something that the sovereign can't make you believe, but that doesn't mean the sovereign can't cancel you or banish you. There's a huge exception. Listen to how he treats it. Without being able to obligate anyone to believe them, the standards of sociability agreed upon by the majority, such as children should have their dignity protected or be protected from emotional harm. We shouldn't see things like happened with Ginger Duggar happening to children. The sovereign, Rousseau says, can banish from the state anyone who does not believe them. And you say, well, wait a minute, if you're not required to believe them, how can you banish them? 
Here's what he says. The sovereign can banish him, not for being impious. See, Christianity is a spiritual thing, right? Think what you want in your head, in your heart. But can be banished for being unsociable. The punishment, he says, can even be death. Now, you might say, that's awful. And, and how could Christians ever ever believe that, that there could be that kind of banishment or punishment over what you believe about God and the relationship between God and the world. But let me share with you something Abraham Kuyper wrote. And this is contained in the speeches that he gave to the Princeton Seminary students in 1898. He's speaking here about the foundations of the state resting in God and God's authority, and he comes to the issue of blasphemy. Here's what he says. As regards blasphemy, the right of the magistrate to restrain it rests in the God consciousness innate in every man. And the duty, and here's the important part, the duty to exercise this right punishing blasphemy, flows from the fact that God is the supreme and sovereign ruler over every state and over every nation. But for this very reason, the fact of blasphemy is only then to be deemed established when the intention is apparent contumaciously to affront this majesty of God as the supreme ruler of the state. What is then punished is not the religious offense, nor the impious sentiment, but the attack upon the foundation of public law upon which both the state and its government are resting. And now compare that last part of what Kuiper said to what Rousseau says. It can banish him not for being impious, but for being unsociable, for being incapable of sincerely loving the laws and justice and of sacrificing his life if need be for this duty. If after having publicly acknowledged these dogmas related to the importance of sociability and the sentiments that, the things that promote those sentiments of sociability, he says, if someone then continues to behave as if he doesn't believe them, let his punishment be death. He has committed the greatest of crimes he has lied before the laws. And Kuiper says that blasphemy is punished not because of its impiousness, but it's an attack on the foundation of public law upon which the state and its government are resting. You see, friends, we will either have God rule over us or we'll have man and tyrants. We don't have a third option. God does not give us that. In the form of government, we have, thankfully, divides power and authority up between branches of government and between state and federal governments. But when we fail to understand the very foundation that of, of that upon which those structures were to rest, 
and to serve, then, well, we may find that some of the rights we most love, parental rights, civil liberty, are lost. And we'll come to why that may be the case. And that may be what God is doing next week on God, Law, and Liberty. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.